The psalms that you've read and sung and had sung to you this morning reflect a growing commitment here at Clearnote to bringing the biblical psalms back into our worship. Have you noticed that psalms are rarely sung in Protestant worship today? Yet from the birth of the church up until about 1800, the psalms made up the bulk of what Christians sang on the Lord's Day. We're working to revive this practice here, and that commitment comes from a desire to more fully conform ourselves with the scriptures. The New Testament is more, in more than one place explicitly commands us to sing them. Colossians 3.16 is the classic passage. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do we sing hymns at clear note? That's a no-brainer. Do we sing spiritual songs? There's a lot of arguments about what on earth that even means here in the text, but we wouldn't, it's probably wrong for us to read back into the text, you know, African spirituals or um, choruses from the 70s, but we do sing some African spirituals and some choruses from the 70s, so let's say we do sing some spiritual songs. Probably not as many as we should. Do we sing the Psalms, though? Well, by my count, we only sing two. One and a half. We have a, a full one, I Wait for the Lord. Remember that? Setting by, by uh, Phil Moyer. My soul, my soul, it waits. That's uh, Psalm 130. Out of the Depths. And we sing, holy in your ways. Holy is the Lord. You know that song? It's the second half of Psalm 77. We're strong in the hymn category. Decent, maybe, in the spiritual songs category. Very weak in the Psalms. And so you'll notice over the coming months and years that the band will probably be focusing a lot of our energies there trying to revive this practice that's been lost. Um, Just wanting to have it kind of proportionate to the other categories. Now, reintroducing the Psalms into worship presents some practical and some spiritual challenges. One of the greatest practical challenges is that Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Rhyme schemes and predictable meters are what make our congregational singing possible. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. You can set a pretty simple, easy to pick up quickly tune to that. But the psalm setting that the choir sang has a lot of notes kind of an unpredictable amount of notes squeezed in on one pitch and then suddenly you move. And the rules for that are very sophisticated with little markings over the words. And we could, most of us, learn to do that if we committed ourselves to numerous midweek rehearsals every week for worship. But guests would have no hope of entering in. And so it's not practical. It'd be nice to be able to sing the words, right? That's what they did with the Gloria Patri tagged on at the end. They just sang the words as you would read them in the Book of Common Prayer, which is just basically a translation of the Bible, word for word, Psalm 137, the choir. That's a practical problem that we have to deal with. How are we going to make them singable? Pray for us. We're working through it. Psalm 8 was an attempt. So if we can do at least that good, maybe there's hope. Some of the greatest challenges, though, aren't practical. They're spiritual. The Psalms present spiritual challenges to us. And it's one of the Psalter's spiritual challenges that I want us to consider now this morning. That is the challenge of imprecation. What's an imprecation? Well, you heard one this morning. 
at the end of Psalm 137. It's a a spoken curse, a, a cursing psalm. In Psalm 137, we have one of the most intense imprecations, brief but most intense, in Scripture. And though this psalm is one of the most well-known and frequently quoted psalms in the Bible, culturally speaking, by the waters of Babylon, it's often set to music by famous composers, often quoted in literature. It's also one of the most despised. And here's why. You bring it up, please. Final verses. O daughter of Babylon, dot, 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 verse 9. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That's an imprecation, a curse. Many sophisticated attempts have been made to explain away that part of the psalm. To make it any number of things, but not not dangerous or edgy or what it seems obviously to be. C.S. Lewis calls this prayer, remember the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, he calls this prayer naive, terrible, otherwise beautiful, petty, diabolical, contemptible, and entirely contrary to the will of God. In other words, he's saying that the Israelites were sinning as they prayed this psalm. It's not just outsiders like Lewis who feel this way. Jake Minsel told of a sermon he heard this week, not this week, he told me this week, by a Southern Baptist seminary professor who argued the same thing as Lewis. He he presented the psalm as beginning with the Israelites complaining Sitting in Babylon, complaining. Smallish sin. Moving on to a greater sin, which is putting, having a kind of inordinate love of Jerusalem, putting it above their love for God. So a, an idolatry of their, their capital city, which then brought forth from them this ungodly lust for personal vengeance against Babylon and her children. In other words, if Psalm 137 is anything, according to many preachers and commentators and authors today, it's an example for us of what not to be, what not to do, how not to pray. And that's why it's there. They don't intend to show us how we should pray. They would say that these psalms are descriptive, but not prescriptive. They they tell us how some people have prayed, but not how we should pray. They've prayed like this, and it's quite understandable because we humans feel these really intense emotions from time to time, but nonetheless, they're sinful. Brothers and sisters, it's absolutely outrageous, scandalous to sit above God's word and judge it and tell the Holy Spirit what is and isn't acceptable for prayer? The divinely inspired prayers of King David, a type of Christ, and his appointed temple servants, the Levites. What audacity. We have no shame today. C.S. Lewis has no shame. This Southern Baptist seminary professor has no shame. They do not tremble at God's word. If we approach God's word that way, God himself tells us what we are. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says... A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Many Bible translators and commentators and preachers, many Bible-believing Christians think that 
they're more spiritual than God when it comes to these imprecations, these curses. But the Bible tells us that the exact opposite is true. It says that if we do not understand Scripture, if we try to sit in judgment on it, if we think that it's ours to tell the Holy Spirit what applies and what doesn't apply, what's a negative and what's a positive example, then it's not that we are spiritual, it's that we're unspiritual. So brothers and sisters, let's be spiritual today. Is that okay? Can we be spiritual as we look at this challenging psalm? Let's not sit in judgment over it. Let's not refuse to own it. Let's not be embarrassed by it. Let's not think that it's our job to improve on the Holy Spirit's embarrassing mistake. Let's be spiritual. As I've thought about the spiritual challenges of the Psalms, one verse has resonated more in my thinking than any other. It's Romans 8.26. It says this, The Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we're weak. He helps us in our weakness. And apparently we are stupid as well. Because we do not even know how to pray as we should. And wonder of wonders, mercy of mercies, we find that the Holy Spirit helps us where we're weak. And he sits before God, stands before God, whatever the Holy Spirit does, groaning, translating our prayers into something fit for the glory of God. But I can't help but think that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, also wants us to know how to pray as we should. And has given us prayers as a model for how we ought to pray. He teaches us spiritual words so that we might actually know how to please God, how to come before God in prayer. And that's what the Psalms are. Godly prayers given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we might know how to pray as we should. Who of us would dare to pray like any of the Psalms? If the Holy Spirit, if God himself hadn't told us that's how you do it. Did you notice any of the things that were read in Psalm 60 this morning? Something about how, Lord, you've made me drink wine. (laughs) Who would ever pray that? Lord, over so-and-so, you've thrown your shoe. The Psalms are full of things. Hardly any psalm is empty of many things that you would never ever pray in your right mind if the Holy Spirit didn't tell you, show you that it was acceptable, holy to do so. So let's not sit over the Holy Spirit this morning. Let's sit under him. Let's let him improve us as we look at this challenging psalm. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 137 or follow along on the screen. Let's read it together. And this is the word of God and it is eternally true. It's eternally true. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps for There our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one 
who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Now the first thing to notice about this psalm is that God's faithful remnant. You know what a remnant is? The remnant in scripture? It's the small group compared to the large group of the Jews. So it's the small group within the Jews that God had promised to keep for himself, who would be faithful, that he would preserve. Not all of them were faithful, but he promised that there would be a remnant. So notice that in this psalm, God's faithful remnant mourned their years of captivity in Babylon. I say the faithful remnant And not all Israel, because we know that when the opportunity arose for the Hebrews to return back to Jerusalem, to the promised land, only a handful chose to go. The vast majority of Jews were apparently quite content with their life in Babylon. This is because things were pretty good for them back there, or in Babylon. It wasn't at all like the years of hard labor that their forefathers had spent in Egypt. In Babylon, the Jews were more or less free to live as Jews, to worship and be educated as Jews, and in some cases to prosper and become rich and powerful. Think of Daniel. Under these circumstances, Babylon began to feel a lot like home. But not for everyone. There was a faithful remnant who mourned. Why did they mourn? The psalm says that they sat down and wept when they remembered Jerusalem. This was their capital city. But it was much, much, much more than that. What's our capital city? Indianapolis? I'm I'm a Missourian. None of us are going to weep when we remember Indianapolis. Why were they mourning so deeply? Because this was the place, Zion, Jerusalem, was the place that God had promised to dwell. Zion was a holy city. It was the dwelling place of God Most High. Only there could sacrifices be made. Only there could men be renewed in covenant to God. This was the access point for the Jews to their God. And the Babylonians had destroyed it, completely wiped it out. At this point in God's revelation, and things would change eventually, Jesus announced that to the woman at the well. Do you remember? He said, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He was saying that there's going to be a time when Jerusalem... All of its meaning, my presence, all of that that's packed into the idea of Jerusalem, this city, Zion, will be transferred to something or someone else. But for now, at the time of our song, Zion was the complete religious identity, the complete ethnic identity of the Jews. Jerusalem was in the heart of the promised land, even. And Jerusalem had been utterly destroyed. Not a stone left on another by the Babylonians, their captors. When they thought of their beloved city with all that it meant to them, those who feared God mourned. Now what kind of mourning was it? Was it a pity party? Were they complaining, like the professor said? Were they despondent, inconsolable? Were they beyond hope? No, this was an appropriate, considered, penitential, godly sorrow for their sin. That's why they were there in Babylon their sin. It was a discipline. 
brought upon them in response to their sin by their covenant God who loved them like a father. And he was unwilling that they should continue in sin. And so he disciplined them. He sent them to Babylon. The very severe discipline for very severe sin. They knew this was coming. God had sent them the prophet Jeremiah, and he had warned them of this repeatedly. They knew the reason that it was coming, their idolatry, their immorality, their rebellion. And they knew that it was going to be for a definite season. It wasn't indefinite. It was going to end. Jeremiah had written to Daniel that it would last no more than 70 years. So they knew not to get too comfortable there, right? Well, the faithful knew. The faithful lived as strangers and aliens in Babylon, and they spent their days mourning over sin, which was the purpose that God had sent them there. Note carefully here that those who were content in Babylon ended up staying in Babylon. But those who mourned during their time there, as as was appropriate, God brought back to Zion rejoicing. Second, notice how the faithful did not succumb, did not surrender to the worldly pressures around them. They did not give in to temptation. The Levites were renowned for their musical skills. In the former days, before the the exile, before the deportation to Babylon, visitors to Jerusalem approaching the Temple Mount would no doubt hear the glorious sounds of ranks of harpists and percussionists and singers lifting up loud, joyful praises to God. This would have happened during the sacrifices. This was their job. They sort of, they had a very complicated, sophisticated rotation worked out where they came up to Jerusalem for periods of time and that they served as musicians there. And they were, no doubt, famous for it, or at least exotic in Babylon. And their captors demanded of them song. Let's hear one of the songs of Zion. Well, we don't know what happened exactly to the Levites for this, but they refused them. God had not made them musicians. God had made them temple musicians. They were priests of the temple, not of high culture. They weren't cultural ambassadors to Babylon. These people had robbed them of the presence of God. And the whole point of the music was to glory, to give glory, to bless the name of the Lord, who they loved. So to sing one of the songs of Zion for the amusement of their captors, the very ones who had destroyed their city and the temple, would have been an unimaginable sacrilege. Now, the pressure, (laughs) the pressure to just give them a little ditty. Can you imagine No doubt they could have been greatly benefited materially, circumstantially, from just playing them one of the songs of Zion. No doubt their refusal added suffering to their captivity, but they would not budge. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, they said. And so like their father Moses before them, hi John, Like their father Moses before them, they chose to consider the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. They chose whatever suffering or pain or hardship 
that that decision would bring over robbing God of his glory. Clearly, the Levites loved singing and playing their instruments. We see this in the details of the oath that they make after that statement. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Verse 5, they said, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue, they were singers, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. May I never again utter one note if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And so it was especially difficult staying faithful to God when what their enemies were asking them to do was perfectly in keeping with what they loved most to do. But how can we, they said. Have any of us taken such a stand with the things that we love, brought them to God, sacrificed them to God, because it came down to a decision between honoring him, loving him, staying faithful to him, or being popular or well-liked, or just doing what we love most in the world. Instead of giving in and behaving treacherously to God, they would not give in to these demands. Instead, what did they do? They upped the ante with themselves. You see that? They bound themselves by covenant to Zion instead. (laughs) So not only did they refuse, forget the people that were refusing they upped the ante with God. They, made a, they took a vow. They, they brought the thing that they love most, their whole purpose in life, you know? Think of how much you and your work are one. They brought themselves to God and they said, put an end to me if I ever would do such a thing. Jerusalem would remain their first love. And this vow ensured it. Now remember what the Southern Baptist Seminary professor said at this point. He accused the Jews of being idolaters. He said that they were putting love for Jerusalem ahead of love for God. Now why doesn't that work? Why can't you say that? Well, remember, at this point in history, in God's plan, God, his city, and his temple, and his people are inseparable. They are one. This is the one place where God promised to dwell. The temple was the access point to him. This is where the Jews renewed covenant with him by sacrifice. Now, we say... Often hear a quote from an early church father that he said that he that won't have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. Well, they were saying, if I won't have Jerusalem as my mother, I won't have God as my father. They were not idolaters. They loved God. And their love for God was perfectly expressed in this vow by which they offered up to him the the right to silence their fingers and their mouths should the love of music ever surpass love for God or the love of comfort or of ease or of privilege. It really does happen with musicians, by the way. I'm a musician. And I've seen this happen In our church, well, actually it's before I came, but I've heard about this. And I have seen it with another organist. This is common among organists because they're in a pinch. The churches that have organs are not worth going to. But they're so committed to the organ that they go there anyway. I know of two people who have taken that path during their time here. It's very sad. It's an unwillingness to 
choose the reproaches of God's people and sacrifice the blandishments, the glories of the pipe organ in order to be faithful to God, to sit under his word proclaimed faithfully. Now, the last thing that the, fear, that the faithful Israelites did, the remnant, and this is the part that's especially challenging for us, is they put their hope in the promises of God's retributive judgments, retribution, payback. They put their hope in the promises of God's retributive judgments. The Lord had raised up Babylon. To destroy Judah. That's just clear. Over and over again, the prophets make that clear. The Lord raised up Babylon to destroy Judah. But she, in turn, they also made clear, would be punished for her sin against them. A nation from the north would come and attack her, and the master would become the slave. Now, the psalmists knew this because the prophet Isaiah had told them 174 years prior. And here's what he wrote. This is Isaiah 13. The first verse of that says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. So this is is the prophecy concerning the fall of Babylon at the end of the 70 years. Now, what verse was it? 12. Yeah, go start at 12. He says, I will make mortal men scarcer than pure gold. Speaking of in Babylon. This is what he will do. I will make mortal men in Babylon scarcer than pure gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. Anyone, anyone who is found will be thrust through. And anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. 174 years prior. So the violent imprecation, the curse in Psalm 137, was not an invention of their their anger. Anger's involved, but they didn't invent this on their own. God had promised it. And that's key. God had promised it through the prophet Isaiah. And they were claiming that promise. How would you have had them pray? How should they have prayed in, in your heart? Would you have preferred them to pray contrary to God's will? Would you have them be more spiritual than God? More compassionate than God? Agreeing with God in prayer. Praying according to his will. These are the basics of right prayer. Right? Whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you. If you ask according to my will, I will give it to you. So what are you going to... What can you pray If we're going to accuse these Israelites, these Levites, of praying praying sinfully, then we, we must accuse them or tell them not to pray at all. Because they're only praying, given the basics of godly prayer, praying according to God's revealed will. The question remains, though, how can we sing the Lord's song, Psalm 137. I might have convinced you that it was okay for the Israelites to pray it, that they were only praying according to God's will, but wouldn't it be sin for us to pray it? Wouldn't we just be taking out 
applying their situation to our own personal animosities with our friends and relatives and neighbors. And if we were to pray that, wouldn't it be sin? After all, we live today on the other side of the cross. Jesus has come and established a new law for us, the law of love. Here's one of its chief statements, Matthew 5:43. If you've heard that it was said you sh- you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you says Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sounds like an open and shut case. Psalm 137 just shouldn't be prayed by us today. We're to love our enemies and we're to pray for them. But it isn't that simple. And why isn't it that simple? Babylon is still with us today. That's why it's not simple. Even on this side of the cross, Babylon is with us. And there are many New Testament promises of severe judgment against her. Revelation 17.1. Follow along with me. We're going to read a bit of scripture here. 17.1. Listen to the judgments pronounced against Babylon. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Go down to verse 18, please. The woman whom you saw, the angel tells him, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. They're talking about Babylon. After these things, 18.1, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. When God remembers something, where did I hear this? Somebody told me this this week. When God remembers something, it's like, it's not, oh, aha, I forgot. It's now I'm going to do something about it. Verse 11 of that chapter, and the merchants of the earth who have participated in the immoral economy of Babylon, weep and mourn over here because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Skip forward to verse 19 and listen to this. Psalm 137 ain't got nothing on this. And they threw dust on their heads. These are the merchants weeping, sorrowing. They threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians, it's like Atlantis, thrown into the sea. 
the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride, no one will get married. There'll be no one to marry. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. That's on this side of the cross. Now what Babylon is he talking about? This is the Apostle John. The ancient Babylonian empire is long gone. What Babylon is he talking about? Now, the the Babylon of the ancient world is is just a small picture of something much, much greater than itself, okay? It was a type. The Old Testament's full of types, shadows, pictures that are pointing to something. Babylon was a picture pointing to something. So was Jerusalem. It was pointing to something bigger than itself that would come later. And what they stood for, Babylon and Jerusalem, was this. There are two great mystical, metaphoric women in Scripture. Babylon the whore and Jerusalem the bride of Christ who he loves, who he purchased with his own blood. Everybody in all the world who has ever lived belongs to one of those groups, the bride or the whore. There's no in-between. You're either of the world, Babylon, or of the church, Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing is that currently, these two women are sharing the same turf. The earth. And the earth is Babylon's domain. The New Testament makes clear that this world is not our home. It's passing away. It's awaiting judgment. This is Babylon. The world. We are strangers and aliens, sojourners in a foreign land, We're this morning here together on the banks of the rivers of Babylon asking whether it's appropriate for us to pray Psalm 137. So what about it? Can we pray it? Are we in exile here in Babylon? Yes. Are we supposed to mourn our sins like they did? Is this a time for us to repent, to be disciplined by our Father. Yes. On this side of the cross, here's what Jesus says about our work here. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. James 4, 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves under the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is our work, just like the Jews in Babylon. To have an appropriate, considered, penitential, godly sorrow for our sin. Are we expected like them to refuse to succumb to the tempting influences of the world? 
1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Yep. No different. Here we are on this side of the cross, expected to do just the same thing, to say no to sin. To be faithful to God. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, it says. Do we need to up the ante like they did? Recovenanting ourselves to God, binding ourselves to God by an oath. Do we need to do that? Do you know that we do? Do you know that's what we do here together? Especially when we receive the Lord's Supper and are baptized. These are oaths. Did you realize that when you got baptized? You were making an oath, a covenant with God. He was making one with you. You were promising things. You were upping the ante. That's what baptism is. It comes, sacraments. This word, sacraments, comes from the Latin oath that a a Roman soldier would take. They're oaths. Is it possible for us to have an inordinate love for the church in in how bodacious our oath-making and covenant-making with the bride is? No. We're sinners. And we'll make a big show of loving the church and it will really be just our sin that's, you know, that's causing the problems and getting us overcommitted and all of those things. That's not what I'm talking about. It's impossible to pit the love of Jesus Christ against loving his bride. You can't have an inordinate love of the church. It's to love Jesus. He who won't have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. Jesus spilled his own blood for this woman, the church. You can't love her more than he does. Finally, does God want us to agree with him in prayer? Even when what he has revealed is difficult, does God want us to agree with him in prayer? Consider how the Lord Jesus did it. Jesus went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, the Holy Spirit wants us to agree with the Father in prayer. That's why he's provided us the Psalms. And they have challenges. Imprecations, curses are a challenge to us. I want to say a final word in closing about the law of love and the imprecations of Scripture. Is it cruel or or is it loving to warn people about judgment? Is it cruel or is it loving? It's loving. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me? Matthew 21. I'll close with this. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He's speaking to the Jews about the Gentiles. And then he says, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now listen. 
Can you, can you pray Psalm 137? Some of you are thinking about people that you love. And you, and you look at Psalm 137 and you know that they're, they're a part of Babylon. And you're thinking, I can't pray that. I can't pray that. I don't have faith for that. Listen to what Jesus is saying in verse 44. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Christ is the rock. We know that. That's clear in scripture. That often when it's speaking of a rock in the Old Testament, we're we're talking about Christ. There's more than one way to skin a cat, in other words. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're praying that one way or the other, God will have the victory over those we love. And that's hard. But I'm trying to give you room here. I'm trying to give you encouragement. Do you see it? Pray it in this way. Oh, Lord, let them fall and be dashed upon you so that they're not dashed by you. Let my loved ones who have refused you till now fall upon the rock of Christ. Be broken to pieces, but that's how we're saved. Undone remade in his image. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd give us faith, Lord, to believe it, to own it, to pray it, and to not be ashamed of it, not to sit in judgment over it, but to let it improve us. Teach us to pray, Lord. Bless this endeavor of bringing psalmody into the church, and I pray that it would be to your glory and to our improvement spiritually. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.